All right, Genesis chapter 1. Turn us to Genesis chapter 1. You know, as a child, I, hear, I remember hearing preachers back in the day. They used to say there are three important questions that everyone must ask themselves uh, in this life. Number four, the first question was, where did I come from? The second question was, why am I here? And the third question was, where am I going? And that's, that's, these are vital to your very existence. Think about this. I think those questions are still vital today. Nobody says that anymore. Back then, I heard that quite a bit. Those three questions that you should ask yourself. And people should think seriously and deeply about those questions. But a lot of people are living in some kind of a dream world today. And they don't consider eternity. They, they think about what they're presently doing. So that's all they're thinking about. So they don't have any inclination to think about eternity, or they don't take the time to think about their eternal soul. But let me ask you the first question. Do you know how we got here? Let's think about how important this is to answer for everybody. If a person sat down and thought to himself, how did we get on this planet? That's the first key to get the ball rolling to everything else. How did we get here? How did we come to be on planet Earth? Now, I know the secular world does their dead-level best to push the idea of you know, that somehow we came from a one-cell organism. They don't know how we got that one-cell organism, I don't think. And then, you know, in time that evolved through our ancestors, the apes, and then we came on the scene. We're the highest animals. Uh, man is the highest of animals. Now, ask yourself this question. Seriously. Does that make any sense at all, any common sense? It never has to me. When I heard this back in years ago, I, I, never, I never thought it made any sense. But the Bible definitely shows how human beings arrived on the planet. It doesn't make any apologies. It did not involve an accident. It did not involve evolutionism, which is the religion that people buy into that say that, you know, they, they buy into that system of evolution. But it is a religion. Yes, it is indeed. And it didn't involve that. It did, it did not involve a molecules to man transformation. It did not involve millions of years or billions of years, creation actually took six days according to the scripture. Now, people say, when you tell them that, they think, this guy's crazy for saying something like that. It had to have taken billions of years, millions of years. Why do we think? It's because we've been brainwashed to think that way. So we think the Bible believer sounds like a fool on the other end of it. When you realize that God is all-powerful and he can do anything, he can create the world in a twinkling of an eye if he wanted to, then that reasoning goes out the window. He took six days to create. He did that for a reason. And on day six, he creates man and woman. And he created them in his image. And his will for man and woman is to honor their creator in every way possible. That's his will. So we're on day six of creation. That's in verses 24 to 31. We've ever already covered the five days previous to this. And we started on sixth day of creation last week. On this day, the sixth day, there were two acts of creation. First of all, we talked about this last week, there were the land animals. Look at verse 24 and 25. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the, on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. So you can see there's three categories of land animals here. There are the cattle, that's domesticated cattle. We said last week, domesticated animals, anywhere from any kind of livestock from cows, cows to sheep. There are creeping things or crawling things, 
which are legless creatures such as lizards and snakes and all the insects and rodents, all the fun creatures you like to deal with at your house. There are the beasts, which are the wild animals or beasts of prey like lions and tigers and bears and elephants and all that kind of thing. And so the land animals were created on day six. That brings us to mankind, the second act of creation on day six, mankind, found in verses 26 and 27. So look at Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this second act of creation, as I said, concerns mankind. Last week, we looked at the Trinitarian nature of this verse, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image. And though many people play that down, and they say, well, what does that mean? When he said that, he's talking about angels. He had, he had angels help him create the world. Well, that's absurd. It doesn't say that anywhere in Genesis 1. Or maybe he had the whole creation to help him with the, with the, with the creation of man. Uh, but we believe that this is a plurality in unity, and it opens the door for the doctrine of the Trinity. Not in its full development in the Old Testament, but it will be fully developed in the New Testament. And we believe that God created God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, created mankind. So on the sixth day, he creates man. Now, most of you already know where it says man in verse 26, man in verse 27. You already know the Hebrew word for that. Probably you could tell me. We have a person in this room whose name is that, not Jimmy, not Eric. It would be Adam, right, or Adam is the, is the word for that. That can refer to, an, to mankind in general. It can refer to an individual a person. It can refer to a person with a proper name like Adam, all these things. Or it can refer to all of mankind, like in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 just uses the word man. Verse 27 defines exactly who we're talking about because it's talking about mankind. We're talking about men and women, all men and women. New Testament also uses the word Adam in uh, different cases. Like, for example, Luke 3.38 talking about the name of the first man. And also in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the resurrection chapter, talking about mankind. Now today, the term mankind is not popular. People don't want to hear that term. A lot of people say, well, that's a sexist term. You know, they're trying to get rid of a lot of words, a lot of terms. And this is one they'd like to get rid of. It's a sexist term. It's misogynistic. It's evil. It's demeaning to women. But the, the truth is, God is the one who said let us make man in our image, so that you can take that up with the creator, that argument. Now, the culture today would like to get rid of that. They, in fact, they'd like to cancel out God altogether. Cancel God, that's the word now, altogether, get rid of him. And, but we know why they say this. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind set on the flesh, in other words, the unsaved mind, it's the mind not, that doesn't possess, the, the, the life that doesn't possess the spirit, the unsaved person is hostile toward God. Hostile towards God, it says. It does not subject, self, subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. So we wonder, why is this all going on? Why are people acting crazy like they are? Why are they doing the things they're doing? It's because their minds are hostile toward God. Now, did God intend by this term, Adam, to demean women? Is that what he's saying? No, because women are made in the image of God. 
just like men. How is that demeaning? That's elevating, if anything. Even Bible translations have fallen for this idea of political correctness in translation. And so you'll read certain translations. They refuse to use the word man. Or man have you ever read any of these translations? <laughs> they won't use the word man. They won't use the word mankind. Instead, they'll use the word like humankind. Like the new Revised Standard Version says, let us make humankind in our image. The TNIV, the t today's, today's New International Version, not the New International Version, uh, of 2011 or 1984. If you're going to read one of these, by the way, read the one of 1984. The today's in the New International Version has, I think, had humanity there in that, in that reference. But that's, that translation has pretty much gone by the wayside. It got trashed. I called it the trash in IV, TNIV, because people, it didn't get accepted by the Christians, it, by and large. Today, today it'd be more and more acceptable. But why do they do this? Why do they translate like this, humanity and humankind? It's because this way they can avoid the offensive term, mankind. It's offensive. We don't want that term. It's offensive to people because they don't want the Lord to use his own terminology that he inspired in his word. They don't like that. But the Lord uses this word for a reason. Why? To antagonize people? No, it's because he's setting the order and he's setting the, establishing the order and role of men and women right from the beginning, especially in the home where the Bible teaches man has leadership in the home. And later on for the church, 1 Timothy 2 and other verses, they have leadership in the church. So what the scriptures teach very plainly. Now other translations like the NIV 2011, that's the one on the market today. What they do in the New Testament, they do a similar thing. When it says brothers, often you've read in your New Testament often, brothers, Paul says in Romans 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, right? When it uses words like that, oftentimes when it says that, it's addressing everybody in the church, brothers and sisters in the church, men and women in the church, the whole audience. And we understand it that way, but in their efforts to appease the world, they will cave to pressure and they'll say, like the NIV 2011, brothers and sisters. The word is brothers in Greek, but they'll translate it every time, brothers and sisters, if they, in, that, in that kind of a context. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with using the term humanity or humankind. I'm not, against, I'm not against these terms, per se, unless you're trying to make a politically correct Bible. Then, you see how Genesis 1 already begins to speak to issues that are happening right today, and a lot more, too. And the Bible's not seeking to be politically correct. Never had, God's word does not conform to society, does not conform to the norms of society. It's not like that. It's not trying to appease society. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized a thought came to me. You know, it could be the way America's going. It could be one day they could ban the scripture, ban it from being read or studied. What if that happened? The Bible does not fit the world's agenda, nor was it intended to. It fits God's agenda, and he says things for a reason. And that's what we need to know. But let's look at this chapter. I want you to notice, first of all, and I have notes back there, man is a direct creation of God. He's a direct creation of God. Now, look at the words in Genesis 1 that are used. The words are make, create, form. Genesis 1.26, look at it. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man. Verse 27, God created man. Go to chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to look at that tonight. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man. This is referred to as sudden creationism. Sudden or direct creationism. Man was suddenly created. 
instead of evolving over millions of years or a million years or whatever it is, I can never remember their scheme. And I think it's changed at different times too, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. West. But nevertheless, they have a lot of time they throw behind this stuff. Sudden creationism, suddenly created, immediately created by God. It's also used to call direct creationism because God directly created man. So there's none of this evolving over time in Genesis 1. Uh, God did not need evolution to assist him and to help him in this process. If he did use that, he didn't know about it, apparently. It doesn't even mention it here. Genesis 2.7 goes into more detail of how, the, the how of, crea- of the creation of man. It, he was Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. He was formed from the dust of the ground. Now, the world was created without any pre-existing materials. We've talked about that. Nothing there at all, and then God spoke the world into existence. Now, we have a, something, we have pre-existing materials created by God already. The dust of the ground, the dirt, the ground. God created that, and so this is what he uses. Dust from the ground is the raw material God uses to bring forth man. It's actually the topsoil or loose soil, loose dirt, surface dirt of the ground. Luther translated this phrase, the lump of the earth. So, even though man is made in the image of God, we're going to get to that later on, a little later on, keep in mind that he was made out of the dirt of the ground. Think about this. As one wise man said, dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Well, Yes, we are dust, but more than that, we are made in God's image. So the guy was on to half of that was correct. The Hebrew word for man is Adam, Adam, but I'm saying this for a reason why I'm bringing this up. The, the, the word for ground, look at chapter 2, verse 7. Dust from the ground, the word for man is Adam, the word for ground is Adama. Adam, Adama. It's a play on words. It literally is a play on words, which the Hebrew Bible does a lot, makes a play on words. And I'm saying this only because you can see the connection between uh, human life and the raw connection and the raw material from which it was made. It's like saying the earthling came from earth, something like that. So you can see that would be like a play on words. So man was created from the ground. Think about his connection with the ground. Chapter 2, he's going to work the ground. And then what's going to happen to him one day? He's going to be buried in the ground. And Genesis 3.19 is going to say later on, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Came out of the ground, we're going to go back to the ground, and we bury people in the ground. So while people possess a God-given dignity from being made in his image, keep in mind that we come from the ground originally, meaning we cannot be unduly proud of who we are. Now, people today are proud. I tell you what, the arrogance you see with people. They talk about, they're always proud of themselves. I hear people interviewed, oh, I'm proud of myself. You've got to be proud of yourself. Oh, I am proud of myself for what I just did, whatever it might be. So proud. But being made from dirt is a humbling thing. Think about this for a minute. There's no room for sinful pride. It shows that we're fragile creatures dependent upon God. We're dependent upon Almighty God. Unless you, get too, unless you and I get too big for our britches, Job has a word to say about that in Job chapter 10. Job 10, yeah, Job's going through his trials. He's having difficulty. You know, in chapter 1 and 2, Job is reacting great, right? I'm, 
oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to worship the Lord. I, I know everything's been removed from me. I'm going to worship the Lord. But then he, chapter 3, he begins to complain. Man, I wish I wasn't even born. Yes, sir. Listen, I get it. I don't blame Job. When I read this, I'm thinking, Job, I'm with you on this. You know, I understand what you're going through here. But in Job, chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, he says this. He says this to God. God, going through my trials, he says, Your hands fashioned me and made me all together. You're my creator. You made me. And would you destroy me? Is this what you're trying to do, destroy me? Remember now that you made me as clay. And would you turn me into dust again? Job recognized where he was from. He's saying, he's saying Lord, I'm only a man of the earth. And I'm going to return to the earth. I'm fragile. You could destroy me if you wanted to, easily. Psalm 103, verse 14, For the Lord himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are what? We're dust. He knows, he knows who we are. We're, we have no right to be proud before God. He knows who we are and what we are. Now, how do people who came from dust and will return to dust become proud? That's a good question. Now, notice in verse chapter 2, verse 7, the word formed. The Lord, uh, it says, form man of the dust of the ground. The term, that term is used in different ways in the Old Testament. It's used of forming the nation of Israel. I think I have this in your notes in the, in the references. You can check out these references later. It's used of forming the natural world. It's used of forming our, friend, our good friend Leviathan, we talked about last week. A creature I would never want to meet. It's used of godless people making or forming images, wooden images, wooden idols. It's used of the activity of a potter. The potter in the clay forms the clay, like we talked about last week, Jeremiah chapter 18. The potter gives personal attention. It's used like, it, often in those kind of references, by the way. It gives personal attention to his uh, shaping and fashioning pottery, and that's what God did with man. He made man the way he did on purpose. Man is God's design, not evolution again over all kinds of time. There's no hint of natural selection as our hymn was chosen earlier, but rather, he is creation by design. Man is designed by God to be what he is. Genesis 2.7 goes on to say, he, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This has been called a warmly personal act. I don't know how what this looked like. But whatever it looked like, personal, uh, the way it is, and by this act of breathing, God made Adam alive, physically alive. He was a lifeless corpse. And then God brought him into, uh, uh, to make him into a living being, a living, breathing being. Think about, oh, by the way, this reminds me of our spirit salvation. We're dead spiritually. It doesn't say this here. But you can see this in the New Testament. We're dead spiritually, totally dead. And God has to what? Make us alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. Just like he did physically the man in Genesis 1. And he made man with the appearance of age. He's a fully mature man. He doesn't go through childhood. He makes him as an adult male. Woman is an adult uh, female. God made him this way. Man is a direct creation of God. Secondly, man is made in the image of God. In the image of God. And as we look at this section, uh, I'm going to ask a series of questions in regard to this idea of the image of God. Verse 26, <clears throat> God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now, Let's, what do the words image and likeness mean, first of all? What are, the, what are the definitions of these words? First of all, the word image means likeness. It actually does mean likeness. Some would say it's a copy uh, of the original. 
And that, so it means likeness, technically it means likeness, and then it also means this, that, God, that man is God's representative. Like God, we're like God, and we're God's representative among the creatures of the earth. What about the word likeness? That has to do with a shape or pattern, something that's patterned after the original. These are the kind of words used to describe us being made in the image and likeness of God. So based on this information, the definitions, and to keep it simple, I like Wayne Grudem's definition for the image of God and man, because it's, as usual, Wayne Grudem is clear and concise with his definitions. I'm not saying I agree with everything Grudem ever said. But he says this, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. The fact that he's in God's image makes it, means that man is like God and represents God. That sounds like the definition we just went, which is true, it is. And we're going to add to that thought the book from the book Bible Doctrine, Biblical Doctrine, this idea, the image of God is that which distinguishes human beings from the rest of God's creatures. We're distinguished from all other creatures on the planet. So basically, these words image, likeness are kind of interchangeable in how they're used. You can see that. Verse 26 mentions both words, image and likeness. Verse 27 only mentions one word, image, which captures the essence of both words. Kind of interchangeable. Now, both words speak of something that is similar to God but not identical to God. Similar to him, not identical. So when we say that men and women are like God, we do not mean that they have achieved Godhood or somehow risen to the level of deity. That's not what we mean. They are made in his image only. Again, Grudem says the original readers would have understood this to mean this. This is how the original readers would have thought when they read this. They would have thought, verse 26, let us make man to be like us and to represent us. That's what they would have thought. Now, there has been endless discussion of this doctrine for centuries. From early on in church history, all Irenaeus and all these guys, Augustine, all these guys, they talked about this. In the Middle Ages, they talked about the image of God. What does it mean? In the Reformation, they talked about what does the image of God mean? Everybody's talked about it. Um, but I will say this. This makes a lot of sense. The more you understand of the nature of God, and the more you understand of the nature of man, as the scriptures present it, the more you're going to understand of what the image of God is in man and woman. The more you understand about God in the scriptures, the more you understand about people in the scriptures, the more you're going to see how this image of God works in their lives. And that would require, quite honestly, that's going to require you studying and reading the Bible over your lifetime. So when you guys have lived your life and you figure it out, come back and talk to me about that. We'll go home for the time being, though. But let's think about this for a minute. Let me ask the second question. What are some aspects of our human makeup that reflect our likeness to God? What are some aspects of our human makeup that reflect our likeness to God? And this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but think about this. What does it mean to be in the image of God, the likeness of God? First of all, God thinks and has intellectual capacity, and so do we. He thinks and has intellectual capacity, and so do we. Isaiah, you could look at a lot of verses on any of these uh, sections that we're going to look at. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, right? He's thinking. We're thinking. We're not thinking on the level he's thinking. He wants us to. But nevertheless, we both think. In this, we're like God. God had made us with an intellect. With an intellect. We can think. We can reason. We can be creative. We can turn our thoughts into words and communicate with people. We have understanding. We can be logical or, quite honestly, I'm not sure, or we can be illogical in many cases depending on who you're talking to. 
But we have this ability to think, possibly. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. Secondly, God expresses emotions and so do we. He expresses, expresses emotions and so do we. For example, Psalm 2, verse 4. The kings of the earth are trying to come against God and they're trying to, to, uh, they're trying to rebel against God. And it says in Psalm 2, 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Are you kidding me? You're trying to attack me? I'm God. So he laughs about this. It's an emotion. Exodus 32.10, when they made the uh, golden calf, God says, let me alone that my anger may burn. He is really angry at this point. It's an emotion, anger. John 11.35, everybody's favorite verse. I'm still working on it, memory verse. I have one word down the first one. John 11.35, Jesus wept. That was my goal this year to memorize that verse. Jesus wept. Uh, Lazarus had died, and Jesus is sorrowful over that. He's expressing emotions. We, too, express emotions, like God does. We feel happiness. We feel sorrow, anger, joy, the the complete range of of emotions. Next, God has a will, and so do we. He has a will, so do we. Remember Joshua in Joshua 24, 15? He's talking to the people, and he says, look, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Choose. Make your choice. You're going to serve the idols. Are you going to serve God? What's it going to be? Make your choice. Make your decision. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and every give thanks for this is what? God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is God's will. We can, we can, we have, God has made us so that we can have, we can choose between two or more options in life. We, am I going to go to this school or this school? Am I going to take this job or this job? All these decisions, we can make decisions. I'm not speaking now of the freedom of the will in relationship to Calvinism. I'm talking about that. But God has made us to be volitional creatures as he is volitional and he has a will. And then God is relational and so are we. He's relational. He relates to people and he relates within his own, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Communes with the, with the members of the Trinity. I hate using the word the members of the Trinity, by the way, because it's not even the Bible like that. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but... You know what I mean. Matthew 3.17, the baptism of Christ. I keep thinking about the Jordan baptism, Mike, where that guy said that crazy statement. But Matthew 3.17, God's Father says of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's pleased with the son. He has a relationship with the son. It's a father and son. And then 1 John 1.3, John says, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So we can have a relationship with God because God is relational, so are we. We're like him in this regard. We can have a relationship with people. We can relate in marriage. We can relate to our family. We can relate to the world at large, like God does. Also, God works, and so do we. Genesis 1, what is he doing? He's working. Six days of creation. Seventh day, he rests. Ephesians 4.28, Mike quoted this morning. Basically, stop stealing people so you can work with your hands. Work with your hands so you can provide for other people's needs. And so he expects us to work. He made us to work. God works. Uh, and then we are to work. So these are some aspects of, of, our, of, of things in us that reflect his image. Does that make sense? That reflect his image. And you could, again, you can continue to study this. Third question, what happened to God's image at man, in man at the fall? What happened to God's image in man at the fall, the fall being Genesis chapter 3 when man sinned? What happened? When man sinned, Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to go to Genesis 3 for 
a little while, but did mankind lose the image of God at the fall? Did he lose it? He said it's all over with at that point. Is that what happened? Um, the answer is no. Did he lose the image of God because of sin? The answer is no. Go to Genesis. Now, if you will, trace with me through, through the scriptures here a little bit. Go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is after the fall. Genesis 3 is the fall, right? Fall of man, they said. Genesis 5, 1 to 3. says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Verse 2, he created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man. There it is again. Sorry, we translated it that way, ladies. In the day when they were created, verse 3, when God had lived 130 years, I'm sorry, when God had lived. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own what? His own likeness, according to his image. And he named him Seth. And so the implication is here, after the fall, the image of God in man continues. It continues. And it continues in Adam's son, Seth. Seth resembles Adam. He doesn't not exactly like Adam. Adam resembled God to some degree, a lesser degree in Genesis 5 than in Genesis 1, too. But... Now Seth resembles Adam. He's in his own image. This continues. Seth is not identical to Adam, but he's like him in many ways. Maybe he had the same color of hair and same eyes and this and that. And so we say today, what? Like father, like son, right? That could be good or bad. Let's turn to a stronger proof that the image of God continues. Go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, verse 6. I know this is a little bit... It just takes a little time to work through this. Genesis 9, 6. We're after, the, we're after the fall again, right? We're, we're after the flood uh, in Genesis 9. And uh, verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Made man in the image of God. Now, even at this point, we still find people to be in God's image. This is after the flood. He's wiped out everybody. He's still in God's image. And we find out that part of the image of God, meaning of the image of God in man, is this. We consider life sacred. If you're made in the image of God, and everybody is, then you should consider life sacred because it is sacred to God. Now, we do not murder people, right? We're not supposed to because they're made in the image of God. Now, can an image bearer, can an image bearer, that's all of us, murder another image bearer? Is that possible? Oh, yeah. It's happened all, all, since Genesis chapter 4 happened again and again and again and again in history. People have been murdering since Genesis chapter 4. During the heyday of communist rule, Stalin is said to have murdered, this is hard to believe, at least 20 million people. It could be, there's estimates of up to 60 to 80 million people he murdered. That's incredible. That's one person. Uh, and yet, as image bearers, we're to hold life sacred. You know, that's why abortion is so horrible. Now, correct me if I'm wrong over here on row two, row number two. Uh, I think that uh, I've read that the average statistics for abortion in America is six to 800,000 a year. That's what I've read. Am I wrong about this? 3,500 a day? Wow. That's, that's, that, that works. That's good enough. 3,500 a day. Babies being killed, literally. That sounds like genocide. They tried to wipe out of Cambodia one time, this crazy guy that was running the country. That sounds like genocide, like that, like Cambodia. Let's wipe it all out. People can play this game of 
calling a baby a fetus and all this, but everybody knows it's a baby. These people know it's a, they know what they're doing. Abortion is simply murder. The life of an image bearer is being taken. But as image bearers, we're considered life sacred as a gift of God. Let's go to the New Testament. Go to James chapter 3, verse 9. James 3, 9. I want you to turn here because I want you to see this. James 3.9 says, now James 3 is about the tongue, the evil effects of the tongue. tongue can be, the tongue can be used for good purposes. It can be used for evil purposes. You can literally destroy people with your tongue. Children have been destroyed with people's tongues. They've been discouraged. They've been redirected in life. They've been crushed because of what people say. That's hurtful. So James says, don't, don't be this way. Use your tongue, use your words to help people, to encourage people, to influence people. Look at James 3.9. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And with the tongue, the same tongue, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Talking about the image of God here. And with this tongue that we bless God with on Sunday morning when we come into the auditorium to pray and praise God, then we go out in the car and drive on the road and we're yelling at somebody, cursing them. That's the same thing, the same, same tongue. And if, if we looked upon people lost or saved, by the way, they're all image bearers, lost or saved. If we looked upon people as image bearers, think about this for a minute. We might think twice about what comes out of our mouths or what actions we commit. The Lord wants us to, be, he wants us to uh, treat people uh, properly, with respect, with dignity. That's how we're supposed to be treating everybody. If people did that, we'd have a totally different world on our hands here. The second command from the Old Testament still applies in the new, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it says. Love your, we're called upon to love our neighbor who is made in the image of God. Now, that's not always an easy assignment. I agree. Some people, you want to club, you know, club them over the head. Maybe you don't want to do that, but I'm confessing my sin right now. <laughs> Boom. So the image of God man is still a reality. Still a reality. So what happened at the fall? Well, many people in church history say, well, it was destroyed. The image of God was destroyed at the fall. Completely wiped out. Um, and it can only be remade when the Lord saved a person. When he saved someone, then he can remake that image that's been totally wiped out and destroyed. But if it was destroyed, why are people still image bearers after the fall? in the Bible. So I can't accept that uh, explanation. So what did happen at the fall? Well, something happened that was not good. And we say man's image, God's image of man was distorted. There's a lot of words you can use. It was distorted. It was marred. And, and we're less like God than we used to be before the entrance of sin. But the image has not been destroyed or obliterated. Now let me quote a few guys from the theologians from the past. I'm only doing this because I want you to, to to put this in your head good. One guy named Burkhauer, I have this in your papers too, an old theologian says this, the above passages, the ones we just looked at, show that the image of God persists even in fallen man. It persists, I like that word. Still going, still ongoing. We saw it in James 3, 9, still going on. Another guy named Halsey said this, one who holds to scriptural teaching concerning the depravity of man must maintain that the faculties, the faculties of man are corrupt. Listen to the words he uses. We're corrupt and defiled, but this doctrine does not imply their annihilation. In other words, the image of God has not been annihilated or destroyed, although it's corrupted and defiled. Carl Henry, however much the moral earthquake of the fall 
impaired the, uh, the, the image of God and man. How much it impaired that, it did not wholly demolish it. The image of God and man is reduced. It's distorted. It's even falsified, yet it's never wholly eradicated. So not destroyed. Not destroyed. I like the words. It's mar- you could use marred. It's distorted. It's corrupted. It's defiled. It's impaired. It's reduced. It's falsified. Can I add a word? It's messed up. We messed up. We messed it all up. Do you see why we need a Savior? Because we messed everything up at the fall. Now, the only one born since the fall with the perfect image of God was Christ. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But the image of God, man, is messed up, yet it persists. People are still born in the image of God. That's what happened at the fall. The image of God was distorted. Number four, how do we, so how do we reclaim, how do we recover the image of God as it should be? How do we get this back? How do we get to where we should be or start working on the road to get back? People, well, people are sinners. We're born spiritually dead, and yet we still have the image of God, according to the scriptures. That image is marred, distorted, but it's still there. But when God saves us, the, 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 reformer, the church history people were on to something when they said this, when God saves us from our sin, when he makes us alive in Christ, he gives us a new nature, and he begins to remake us in his image. That's what happens. More and more through the course of our life, he remakes us more like God's goals that we become more. We talked about this all the time. Become more and more like Christ. That's what, that's what it is. That's one reason why salvation is so necessary. Can you see why we need to be saved? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I want you to look at this as well. Colossians 3. Let's read verses 1 and 2 to start here. Colossians 3, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. Paul says, look, you people are saved. Here's what you need to do. You need to set your mind on things above. You need to to focus on Christ. Get your minds right. Get your minds off earthly things, off worldly things. Put them on Christ. Focus on Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. Now go to verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now also you also put them all aside, Put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech in your mouth. Don't lie to one another. This sounds similar to Ephesians 4 this morning. Uh, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Verse 10, you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Verse 10, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. As a new creation in Christ, you are being renewed to a true knowledge of God. You, we messed it all up, right? And now God says, you, you, he saved us, he saved a person, and now he's beginning to renew us to that true knowledge of God. What is God really like? Oh, yeah, let's remake your image into that, what it should be. You have to think about these things, though. You have to put your mind on That's why he's always talking about renewing your mind, Ephesians 4 also. Renewing your mind. And as a result, your actions are going to become pleasing to God. The truth of Scripture is setting us free and free more and more each day. 
Now, we're initially set apart to God at salvation, but we grow in grace each day. This isn't a self-effort thing. I'm not talking about that. Uh, we learn to think more like the one who made us a new creation in Christ. We're thinking like God. Our thoughts are becoming more like him because his thoughts are higher than us. Again, not self-effort. We're totally dependent upon Christ to remake us. Just as God originally created us to be his image bearers, which, which we messed up, now in salvation, God is working to renew this image in us, making us more and more like Christ, repairing that image that was impaired, as one of the guys said. Go to Romans chapter 8. By the way, you could look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 later. I've got that in your notes. That gets more involved, and so I, did, I thought, well, it's going to be too involved to go into. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. The verses all good Calvinists like to quote, right? Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To become conformed to the image of his son. The image of his son, so that we would, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The people that God saved, his plan for them from the beginning was that they would be conformed to the, to the image of his son. We're, that image of God is being remade over the course of our life, we could say. Uh, maybe I could say this better. But this is God's objective, to make us like his son. Now, in this life, it's always a process of growth and grace. We're not, we haven't arrived. I haven't arrived up here. I'm standing in the pulpit. Oh, Mark must be some special person. No, not special person. A sinner saved by grace that God is having quite a bit of trouble working with, probably, to get him to be like Christ. But this is always a process of growth. We never arrive completely while we have these bodies of death. Never will. But 1 John 3, 2 says, When Christ appears, we shall be like him. We're going to be like him. That's what it says. One day when we're with Christ, things are going to be as God intended. In the meantime, while we're here, what do we do? We are here to represent God, right? The, the definition, we're like God, uh, and we're to, we're to resemble God, we're to resemble him more and more, and we're to be his representative by walking in conformity to him and by carrying out his will and by speaking on his behalf to others and by imitating him, Ephesians 5, 1, Mike's going to get to that, imitating him as God's beloved children. The Lord enables us to do these things through his spirit. I'm not saying we do this on our own. Obviously, everything in salvation is God's work. All right, so this is, this is, how, this is, this is what it means. We're renewed in our, by the renewing of our mind and by the way God is working in us. Question number five, what are the implications of being an image bearer? What are the implications of being an image bearer? First of all, being image bearers mean that we treat other image bearers with dignity. I'm going to say it again. We treat other image bearers with dignity. All of God's creatures are image bearers. Everyone on the planet, and everybody on the planet has a certain dignity from God. Certain dignity given from God. Yes, we're sinners. Still, we have this dignity from God. And we're to treat people that properly. Love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people. You can look at any, anywhere in the Bible, and you're going to see the, the, the tone is this way. We're to treat people with, with properly, right? Love people uh, and, and have compassion on people. And you see all these verses. So regardless of a person's culture or skin color or background or social status, 
or nationality or sex or whatever it might be. We are to treat others as God's image bearers. Again, we're all sinners. Some are safe sinners. Some are unsafe sinners, but all are image bearers and should be treated as such. This is not a political statement. I'm just telling you what the scripture actually says. And so the first thing is we treat others with dignity. What's another implication of being an image bearer? Being an image bearer means we are not animals. Not animals. Now, some people insist on acting like animals. And I kind of wonder, maybe there is something to evolution when I see these people. But, of course, that is not what the Lord desires, and no, there's nothing to evolution at all. The image of, maybe I've acted like an animal at times. The image of God in man and woman sets us apart from animals. Now, somebody says, but animals are so smart. They'll bring this argument. <laughs> and, listen, God has given animals the ability to function in their environment. He gives them that ability to function in their environment. So, a bird can fly. And a bird can build a nest for its young. Oh, look at how this bird's taking care of its young. Yeah, God gives them this wisdom, if you want to say it that way. It used to be a show on Moody years ago on Saturday mornings about our creator and how he's, and it was a great show, which it was still on how he's designed animals in their environment. Some can fly south for the winter. How do they know how to do that? God made them that way. What about chimpanzees? They know how to use sticks to get termites from, out of a mound. And they can use stones to crack open nuts. But they're limited to their environment. By the way, they're not related to us. A dolphin, quick learner, can do a lot of interesting things, but a dolphin cannot outthink a person. He can't reason like a human. He can't understand philosophical, philosophical concepts, not able to do that. You know, I've read articles where, which talk about man as an animal. Oh, he's the highest animal, they say. Well, that's not good enough because he's not an animal at all. That comes from an evolutionary understanding, not the Bible. Human children can read stories. They can write out homework assignments. They can even learn a foreign language. They, when they go to a foreign country, ask Ryan, ask anybody who's been in a foreign country, who learns the language the quickest? The kids. They pick it up the quickest. No animal can do that. Animals are not created in the image of God. People are. Thirdly, being an image bearers means we, do, we have dominion over creation. We have dominion over creation. Look at verse 26. Of Genesis chapter 1, go back to Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule. Let them rule over the fish of the sea. Let them rule over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it and rule over the fish, of the, again, of the sea, the birds, of the sky, every living thing that moves. So mankind has been given the, the uh, opportunity and the ability to rule or have dominion <clears throat> over all creatures, even over the earth itself. That word is used twice in verse 26 and 28. Verse 28 says subdue, again, different word. Subdue the earth means subjugate the earth, bring it under control, even to the point of using forcible means if necessary, <clears throat> is what that word means, but not typically but you subdue it, get it under control. So God has given to man this kingly authority to rule over creation. We rule and subdue creation under his divine sovereignty. <clears throat> that includes all human beings, by the way. Everybody made in the image of God. What does this mean? Practically, well, as a result of this, we have dominion. As a result, people have fished and hunted for foods for centuries. They fished and hunted. Can you imagine anybody in this room hunting and fishing? I see people right now who would do that. Or eating the food they hunted and fished for. I've done it. 
So, at first it was a vegetarian diet, by the way. Some of you are not going to like that. Verse 29 and 30, we'll look at that next week. But in time that would change. God himself, I'm not advocating a vegetarian diet right now. God himself would even sanction the slaughter of animals for sacrifices. Peter wouldn't be happy with God on that score either. But man has always used the earth. He's supposed to use the earth. People have used the earth to mine, to dig mines for precious metals. They've built dams to divert water. They've used water for hydroelectricity. They've used trees and stones and iron for all kinds of building materials. They've used cotton to harvest, harvested cotton to make all kinds of cloth products. Farmers have brought, up, brought forth crops to feed people. The earth is meant to be used for all these purposes and all kinds of purposes and technology, and it goes on and on and on. That's what God intended. Sometimes the, sometimes the environmentalists cross the line of God's purposes, but we should nevertheless, this is God's mandate. Now, I'm not saying that we should abuse animals. I'm not saying we should abuse the environment. I'm not saying all these things. I'm saying that God made man to rule and subdue the earth for the benefit of mankind. And so many great things have happened in the world because of that. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. David, Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, David says, When I consider your heavens, Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, kind of sounds like Genesis 1, what is man that you have thought that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, like a king. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is what God has given man to do, rule and subdue. Fourthly, being image bearers means we are to propagate the human race. Propagate the human race, verse 28 of Genesis 1. God blessed the man and woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See the word blessed again. Remember in verse 22? Look at verse 22. God blessed them, the fish and the birds, and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now he says it again. This blessing, I believe, is connected with the idea of procreation primarily. Uh, According to uh, the Numero Uno Hebrew Dictionary, I think, <laughs> uh, the word blessed means here in verse 22 and verse 28 to endue someone with special power. In other words, God blessed the creatures with the ability to procreate primarily. Verse 28, blesses the man and woman with the ability to procreate. We, now, we can see a lot of blessings. I get it. There's a lot of blessings in Genesis chapter 1 you can see. Bless them, yes, in many ways. But I think that's the primary reference to the propagation of the human race. Uh, because next, God immediately says in verse 22 and 28, he blessed them, and then it says, be fruitful, multiply, both times, two times, similar structure seen. Now, the blessing could extend to man ruling over the earth, because that's in the same verse, verse 28. I don't deny that. But the connection between God's blessing and bearing children is seen elsewhere in Genesis. Go Look at Genesis 17, 16. We'll quit in a minute. Genesis 17, 16. Back, go to Genesis 17, 6. God says to Abram, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Look at verse 16. God says to Abram, 
I will bless her, I'll bless Sarah, and indeed I will give you, I'm going to bless her, and I will give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And so you see those connections between blessing and bearing children again and again. That's not the only way the word's used, but it's used in Scripture that way sometimes. Verse 28 uses three terms to describe procreation, be fruitful, multiply, fill. Command, the, the, the command to be fruitful comes from the world of agricultural, just as tree, uh, fruit trees bear fruit, so should married couples propagate in the sense of offspring. Multiply to become numerous, to increase, fill, to populate the world. That is God's mandate for marriage. Now, I know everyone can't bear children for different reasons. I understand that. But that is the general mandate. Now, people today often think this is a total curse. Children are a curse, not a blessing. A lot of people think this. But actually, according to the Word of God, they're actually a blessing. We'll close with this. Let's look at Psalm 127, and we'll close with this. They are a blessing if you see them as God does. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. They're a gift? That they were a curse. That's what a lot of people think, right? They're a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb, there's that word fruit again, is, his, is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of, children of one's, youth, one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So we bear children and we raise them for the glory of God. And guess what? They too are image bearers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word and for what it teaches we pray that you'll give us wisdom to understand what it teaches and help us to live accordingly. We pray for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, Lord, we can't do these things on our own. But we pray you'll remake us in the image of Christ to be more and more like him each and every day. That we will love people and that we will treat them as we should, that we will be a witness to them of the glory of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.